As October comes to a close and we head toward November, all eyes in the country, politically speaking at least, are on Virginia and to a lesser extent New Jersey, as the 2019 off-year elections are often a barometer for how things are going to go in the next year. As there is increasing attention on the Virginia governor's race and races further down the ballot, we have one of our favorite experts on Virginia politics back to discuss what has been happening and what is likely to happen on election day. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider, assuming that provider has a ratings system. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on Facebook and Instagram through the Robertson School of Government pages. So as we are coming toward the election, as promised, back when we did our sort of, sort of first initial election preview, back by popular demand is RSG alum, vice president at Aegis Associates, which is a government relations firm in Richmond, and past president of the Virginia Conservative Women's Coalition, Julianne Condry. Julianne, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me. I hope I got all of the, uh, the titles correct now and, uh, and sort of updated for life circumstances. Yes. Okay, very good. So we last talked sort of right after the, the primary when the general election matchups were, were set. And I'd just like to kind of take a, a state of the race and a tour through some of the top line races and then and maybe get into some of the House of Delegates. So of course, the, the main event, the one that everyone is focusing the most attention on is the sort of Yunkin versus McAuliffe gubernatorial race. So if you would, Start by telling us kind of your perception of what are the closing arguments that each of the campaigns are making, and and from talking to folks more on, on the ground, both on the political side and just folks that you talked to around the state, what are the issues that are really driving people in this race? Wow, so there's a lot to unpack there, but I think, you know, how they're messaging themselves, I mean, McAuliffe is basically, you know, running against Trump. I mean, his ads, everything is, he is trying to depict Yunkin as the equivalent of Trump. In fact, he, he even has cleverly printed signs that look identical to the Yunkin signs with the Trump written underneath Yunkin, where it actually looks like an official Yunkin sign, <laughs> where it you know, they're like, they're running on the same ticket or something. And those, you know, I've seen those popping up all over. So he, that is definitely his tack is to depict Yunkin as the equivalent of Trump and demonize him in that manner. And he's also, you know, attacking him on refusing to say that he would implement mandated vaccines, etc. And so that, that seems to be like his main focus Whereas Youngkin is really focusing on, we've tried Terry before, and it's time for somebody new. It's, you know, we don't, we don't want to rehash where we've already been. So he's been focusing on that, but also freedom, jobs, and education. Because there's, besides the vaccine mandates, which a good percent of our population finds onerous or inappropriate, 
He's also focusing on the education issues that have come up, in particular, the school board issues and the very bizarre position that some of our national government and entities have taken to classify parents as domestic terrorists, which is really just, you know, it's hard. What a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. And that, that actually is sort of a perfect pivot into, if you look at the polling, the public polling that's out there, obviously, we don't know the internals of the campaigns have. But if you look at the public polling, they're showing sort of a, a pretty consistent, small, sort of narrow, sometimes even within the margin of error, lead for McAuliffe. There's a co- been a couple of public polls that Yunkin ahead, but mostly sort of the slight McAuliffe lead. But I'm watching their campaign, the way that they're reacting, the way that they're sort of throwing things out, and, and campaigns of the other Democrats. And they're not acting, to me, like a party that thinks that they are ahead, even slightly ahead. You know, they're not acting like a party that thinks that if they, if they just run out the clock on this, they'll they'll win. Are you kind of getting that, that same perception as well? Absolutely. But you also have to question, okay, is that just a fear tactic to get their voters to show up? I mean, I think that's always a, a tactic that campaigns use is to play like you're the underdog to drive more people to the polls. So I think that could be attacked, but I think there is genuine concern and rightly so that this race is a toss up. Yeah, it's it certainly feels like a toss up. This is more of a gut thing. It doesn't feel like momentum is, is going in the Democrats direction. So I want to focus on McAuliffe for a second and then maybe pivot back to Yunkin. It seems to me like one of the defining moments if if McAuliffe in fact loses, one of the defining moments of this campaign will be the comment that he made about sort of parents not having the right to be in charge of, of educating their children. Now he's even running ads where he's saying that that was taken out of context. Whenever you're running an ad that says that you were taken out of context, you are acknowledging that you have a problem. And so, you know, is this something that's just sort of a, a political bubble thing? Or, you know, do you think this is really playing more, more broadly in Virginia? I think it is playing more broadly. In fact, you know, hearing from typical Democrat voters, frankly, they're voicing concern that they're not being regarded as as having valuable input on their children's education. So I think it's definitely a bigger issue. And as, as you noted, I mean, he came out and did an ad, you know, saying he was taken out of context. But so they clearly re- recognize that this is an issue, even for some Democrat voters. So I, I absolutely I think it's bigger than people realize, and definitely a, a factor here. Last question on McAuliffe, as we're recording this, we're, we're recording this in sort of about a week and a half before the election. It's probably going to air actually the week right before the election. But as we're airing this, it is October 20th. And, you know, we just we just had breaking news this morning that McAuliffe apparently ended an interview sort of in, in the middle of the interview with an ABC affiliate in the Washington, D.C. area. It seems like he's, he's been getting a little bit testy with the media, with people asking him questions and, and so on and so forth. And, and it's happened now more than once. Again, you think this is indicative of anything in terms of the, the campaign is feeling nervous, or is it just maybe, you know, you've got a candidate who's been doing this a lot, you get sort of burned out toward, toward the end, maybe a candidate who's got a little bit of a, of a temper and that's, that's coming through. What's your assessment on that? I think the latter is probably 
would be my gut on this. Having watched him very closely in the 2013 race and, and seeing him now, I think you're spot on in your assessment as he comes across as very angry and insulted if people, you know, ask questions. And, and, and I think, you know, most likely having been governor before and, you know, he feels as if he did an outstanding job as governor. So his response is one that kind of portrays someone who's very irritated and insulted by the questions and the line of questions. So I think that's how I, that's how I see it. If I remember correctly, you worked on the, the Cuccinelli uh, 2013 gubernatorial, right? The campaign? Correct. Yeah. So, so from that perspective, you know, the way McAuliffe is responding to Yunkin versus Cuccinelli, does anything feel different or does it feel kind of very similar to the way he was, he was trying to close out that race? I see some similarities, but a definite difference. Yes. Okay, very good. So pivoting now to Yunkin, and as I just mentioned, you've worked a lot in Republican campaigns, including at the statewide level. I've heard very different assessments of the Yunkin campaign from different folks on the Republican side. Some people saying they, they think this is one of the better campaigns they've seen since 2009. Other people saying, you know, it's been a little too vague on specifics. It hasn't really done enough to sort of motivate the base to come out, those types of things. From your perspective of, of obviously being outside the campaign, but watching it, what do you think are some of the strengths and weaknesses, and how would you assess how the Yunkin campaign has, has performed thus far uh, overall? Well, well, I think, you know, in some ways, this is a very different campaign because Yunkin, or different, I should say, than what we've seen here recently, because Yunkin has not held office before at any level. And so he is a kind of a, a fresh slate in some ways and that that also makes for a very different type of campaign and i mean even how the opposition frames them is is very different and the, the information they're able to use because of course there's no vo voting record etc you know i think the money i mean something we haven't touched on yet is the vast amounts of money that are going into this campaign and the amount of ads, which I know everyone is tired of seeing them already, but, but also the early voting, the election changes, all of those, all of those changes, but the ability to vote early, have early voting, not just absentee, but actual early voting. We're, we're now at just under 500,000 voters with early voting and in 2017, before these election law changes, in the entire you know election cycle, we only had 200,000 early. Mm. So, so we are definitely we have changed the way that we have elections here, which also then impacts the type of campaigns, and and the different points in the cycle in which they get out certain types of information. Because, you know, you're now looking at not just voting day, but voting season. So, so that also changes how they message, when they message, and, and so on. So I think that's also partly why we're seeing a difference, perhaps, oh, that's one of the components in why we're seeing a difference in the messaging and the types of things they message on. And, and we are definitely, not just because of our proximity to DC, but also because of the nature of politics today in the United States, we are definitely seeing a nationalization of this campaign because there's a lot of back and forth identifying 
the opposing candidates as Trump or Biden. And and it's funny because Trump is not running or in in office, yet he is still apparently um, you know, the you know, a key component of this campaign. But I think, you know, the Afghanistan issues, the economy, COVID, all of those things and the unpopularity of Biden, which McCullough even acknowledged among his supporters is all factor in and they factor in to how they message and what they message about. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, one question about early voting. My sense of early voting has always been that it tends to be highly motivated base voters who, who tend to be most densely concentrated in early voting such that it, it tends to mostly just, you know, you're, you're, take, you're moving folks from your election day vote to your early voting column. Is that kind of what you've seen in, in elections where there's been early voting in the past? And would you expect that to be the trend that sort of continues this time? Or, you know, is there really, are there more swing voters who are, are voting early? I have not seen data on that to really answer that, I, I feel, fully. But I know that the campaigns are working very hard to get their base out as early as possible. And that's on both parties. And and don't forget, we also, we do have a third party candidate, Princess Blanding, the Liberation Party as well. Yes. Do you think, uh, what do you think the chances are that she'll end up being a factor when, when all said and done on the second? I mean, I think she's an interesting component to this campaign, especially here locally in Central Virginia. Just watching the dynamics locally, I think, an interesting component. I, I honestly think that she, she pulls primarily from McCullough votes or those who may not have been engaged otherwise. Mm. Okay. Moving on from the gubernatorial race, although you know, there's, I'm sure there's a lot more meat on the bone that we could get from that. Let's talk about the lieutenant governor's race. This is between the Republican candidate Winston Sears and the Democratic candidate Haya Ayala. The general assumption is that. Lieutenant Governor is just going to track very closely with the governor's race, but they actually are running sort of a separate race, separate campaigns, separate ads. What's your assessment of this race? Do you think it's just going to sort of follow the gubernatorial race, or are there some dynamics that might lead to a different outcome? No, I think Lieutenant Governor and Attorney General will track pretty much in line with the gubernatorial race. However, it's been interesting to note, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but in all of the polling the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, Winsome Sears, she seems to be picking up like another, an extra point, surpassing Youngkin and Mieris in the polling, which I, th- I find interesting. So she, she's, she's tapping into some folks and some voters and some interests that the other two are not. I actually had not noticed that, but that's interesting if that's a, if that's a durable trend. Mm-hmm. You know, that indicates that if there's a race where things split, so if Democrats win attorney general and governor, that there's a possibility that if Republicans take only one of the three, it's, it's lieutenant governor. I'd kind of been w- wondering if, if there's a possibility of a split, but I uh, know that is, that is interesting. It'll be interesting to see the final outcomes, whether she does in fact perform, you know, slightly better than the rest of the ticket. Is there anything sort of distinctive about the lieutenant governor race that we we should you know focus on other than just that slight lead for for winsome sears anything else that you've noticed that's worth talking about here nothing is is jumping out at me right at the moment 
Yeah, Lieutenant Governor is not necessarily the most astonishingly thrilling job, as I understand it, although you do have uh, an important role sort of presiding over the state Senate and so on and so forth. But what about Attorney General? You you and I were talking in the, in the pre-show, and you had talked about sort of the idea that there are some issues that are maybe making the AG race a little bit more pointed than, than some previous contests. Yes, but I will I will back up to say Lieutenant Governor actually, in particular, even re- in recent years, they have been the tie-breaking vote on a number of critical votes. So it, re- I, I mean, in my opinion, I think it's a very important role, but it's it's underappreciated and on, on any given day may not be incredibly exciting. But they also, they, they daily preside over the Senate. And it is a, you know, sometimes they have to come to some pretty important decisions. And this past session or past few uh, special and regular sessions there were a number of times that the lieutenant governor had to intervene and take a vote or make a decision on something so so i I wouldn't want to discredit that role at all yeah i i don't know that most voters are sort of wise to that but i think it, it is a good reminder and particularly if you look at the composition of the state senate right now which is which is very tight you you could have Lieutenant Governor actually playing a larger policy role, almost sort of the, the role that Kamala Harris is playing in the uh, National Senate, and that could be the role that, that sort of the Lieutenant Governor is playing. So yeah, definitely an, an, an important role, although not really one I would say that voters pay as much attention to. Correct. And as far as Attorney General, yes, I think this race differs a little bit. Well, I mean, you know, every election cycle, there's kind of an issue or some issue. This particular cycle, the parole board issues, which have been significant, and even at least here in central Virginia, been pretty public and in the news, both the, uh, you know, different forms of media, the various troubles with the parole board. And so Miaras has made that a focus of the campaign. And, and appropriately so, because there are some very disconcerting things that have taken place with the parole board. So that, uh, that I think is a, is a, a factor in this, its race, uh, maybe not significant, but it is definitely one of the major factors. I would normally assume that if you have an incumbent in, in a lower level row office in a state that you know, has a lean toward that party, that they would overperform a non-incumbent at the top of the ticket. But from what you're saying, the polling for, for Herring and McAuliffe is about the same. Is, do you think that's something that maybe bodes poorly for, for Herring, or does it just indicate that this election has, has become so you know, sort of partisan and, and nationalized that there's not really any ticket splitting happening in favor of the incumbent? I think the latter. I, I think this is just everything is so nationalized now, and it's that is the the status of of elections in this space. And in a way, McAuliffe is he is a type of incumbent. You know, having you know, since we're not allowed to have subsequent terms here in Virginia, but him you know running for a term after a span of having someone else in office, he is as close to an incumbent as you can have here in Virginia. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's, it, it is one of the sort of unique dynamics of, of Virginia governor's races. So, you know, I know in the past there, there has been a little bit of a difference if I'm, if I'm remembering back to some previous races between uh, the, the non-incumbent and the incumbent. But on the other hand, you certainly, 
you certainly do have that dynamic where, I mean, it's not like McAuliffe is, is in any way sort of a, a fresh face or is an untested candidate. So moving on from the three sort of top of the ticket races, obviously the House of Delegates are up for re-election here in, in uh, 2021. And it's, it's, as I'm recalling, it's like a six-seat majority that the Democrats have, so very much up for grabs. What are the races that you're watching as sort of bellwethers within the House of Delegates that will sort of determine maybe who controls the chamber uh, after election night? More precisely, I think there are some interesting races that, whether or not they'd be deemed bellwethers, but they're interesting in that we're seeing the shifts and again, redistricting, that's a whole other thing we don't have time to cover today, but how that redistricting commission is um, having difficulty getting those maps drawn because we aren't sure what the lines are going to look like. And although not a factor in this race will, you know, affect future races. Yeah, I feel like we're going to get court maps, but that's just me. Yeah. So... So right now, I mean, I think, you know, District 63, which Delegate Aired currently is the incumbent, and Kim Taylor is the challenger. I think that's been an interesting race to watch, as well as the uh, Fowler and Gould race in 21, and 73, Willett and um, Castleberg. You know, those are just some, and 75, Tyler and um, Otto Walkman. I think those are some of the interesting races. But, you know, honestly, I, I think we're seeing different shifts around the state that may, that may not fall just on partisan lines, but just even, you know, level of engagement, uh, money involved in the races. There's just a lot of components this year that I, I just find very interesting. I'm glad you mentioned 21 because that's actually my home district, uh, the Gould-Fowler race. And, and it, it is kind of sneaky interesting because there hasn't been a lot of money. But, you know, for an incumbent, I've not been impressed just on the on the ground, the, the dynamics. I've not been particularly impressed with the with the Fowler uh, campaign. And, you know, full disclosure, I have some friends that are, that are, you know, involved with the Gould campaign. But it just, you know, even trying to step back and, and assess it objectively really running as though 21 is a deep blue district in in terms of messaging, in terms of the ads that she's doing, in terms of, you know, leaning into social issues that people aren't as much talking about right now. So I'll be very interested to see how that one plays out as well. Where are some some of the other races that you mentioned? You mentioned, you know, 63 and 75. Are those in central Virginia or or down here in Hampton Roads or uh, more, more up north? Yeah, 63 is central Virginia, Richmond area, 75 general, central, those, you know, again, I I think the Democratic Party, they are going through some shifts and changes on their side that perhaps, uh, you know, something similar that the Republicans had gone through several years back with the Tea Party movement and shifts within there. We're seeing some of that same shifting take place on the Democratic side, from their more progressive wing, and that's that is also playing a factor in how the campaigns are functioning, who's supporting, messaging. I, I just that's a an interesting component in the midst of all of this. 
So kind of looking at, at things from a more macro perspective, as people are watching the election returns come in, which hopefully all of our dedicated uh, political fans in the podcast space will be doing, what are some key areas of the state to be watching in terms of if Yunkin is doing X, here he wins, or if McAuliffe is doing Y, here he wins? So, so you know, maybe give us some, some keys to be looking for as we're moving into uh, sort of watching the results come in. Mm, well, I think it kind of goes goes without saying that where the concentration of people are, the concentration of votes, Northern Virginia, Fairfax, but also the Virginia Beach area and the Richmond area, those are, of course are our three densest population centers and watching the, the votes in those areas. And two, keep in mind that they have some time to finish collecting the absentee ballots or, you know, processing them even after election day. So we may not have results on election day with, with as close as they're calling this. Mm-hmm. Is there a specific, so I'm thinking about Loudoun County in particular, because Loudoun County has been, has been the epicenter of a lot of this education stuff. Mm. If you're the McAuliffe campaign, what number, what percentage of the vote for you on election day coming out of Loudoun scares you? I mean, obviously anything below 50, but what, but is there, is there another number that you're like, you're watching the numbers coming in from Loudoun, you're saying, okay, this is not good for us statewide. Mm. I really can't speak to that as far as like Loudoun County. That's not something that I've been monitoring as far as like percentages with this current demographic in this current race. So I, I can't really speak to that. Maybe stepping back a little bit from the specifics of the percentage. Is there any way that McAuliffe can actually like win? Because one of my assumptions has been that if McAuliffe doesn't win Loudoun County, it's going to be very difficult for him to win statewide unless he just actually absolutely gets almost massive presidential numbers out of Fairfax County. Is that right? Or does he have maybe another path to victory if, if Loudoun falls to the Republicans for them? I think that loud. Well, I mean, Loudon definitely has you know a significant population, but much more so, Fairfax, Virginia Beach area. You know, I think if more from an ideological standpoint and a base standpoint, I think both parties should be watching Loudon County. But keep in mind, Loudon County is. It's a very diverse county. The eastern side of the county is a little bit more urban and a little bit, you know, leans left, whereas the western part of the county is a little more rural, leans to the right. So it's a very interesting county, beautiful county. (laughs) And, you know, I wouldn't say... Yeah, I, I think it's just one that we need to watch in particular because of all of the school board issues and the things that are happening there, but also what's happening, you know, in, in Fairfax as well with some of the issues. So I, I think both of those are important counties to watch for a variety of reasons, but population centers are really where the focus is as far as whether or not they can pull off a win. And so let me ask another question more on the Yunkin side. My sense is that if if Yunkin doesn't win in Virginia Beach, that that would be a really bad sign for him. That this is down here is sort of almost a, a must win region for uh, for him. Would you say that that's uh, that that's accurate? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
So we'll be once again Virginia Beach. If you if you're living in this area, you are uh, <laughs> right in the center of the storm in terms of things statewide. So maybe a, a last question: Looking at all of these all of these different election contests, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, house of delegates. Are there, are there any outcomes in any of these races that would really surprise you if after election day, that was sort of the, the way things came down? Hmm. I think, well, the, the top races, like we've already said, they're so close. I think they really could go either way. So, so I wouldn't be surprised there. As far as the house races go, there are some incumbents on both sides, both Democrat and Republicans, where I would be surprised if they did not win because, uh, frankly, some of them are, are good legislators, you know, on, on both sides, Democrat and Republican. And, you know, they've been in office, they have name ID, support. So some of these incumbents on the Democrat side and Republican side, if they were to lose their seats, as it were, I would be surprised. Yeah, I think for me, I would be surprised if in the top three, if anybody wins any of those races by greater than five points, just how close things are, things are going. Slightly more surprised if Youngkin wins by a substantial margin than if, if McAuliffe does. But I think either way, that would be a, a surprising outcome. Well, Julianne, thanks for coming on, doing a final election preview. And we'll have to have you on at some point after the election to do an election review. And maybe if we ever get clarity on what's happening with Virginia redistricting, we can, uh, we can discuss that as well. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you. And that's going to be a wrap for today's episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on all the social media places mentioned at the beginning of this episode. If you live in Virginia and you have not already done so, please go out and vote. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. <music>